I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Good afternoon, Elise. Good afternoon, Corey. 
this is our final episode on Macbeth. Or our semi-final. Semi-final. Because we have a wrap-up. Yeah, we do have a wrap-up, but this is our last discussion about topics related to Macbeth. This one's a very exciting one because in case you haven't realized from all of the topics we've talked about so far, Shakespeare wrote this play for a particular individual. Yeah, at least very influenced by the fact that this individual might see his play. Yes, he wrote the play with King James I's ascension to the throne and current place as monarch of England and Scotland in mind. So this episode, we will be covering all of the different aspects of Macbeth that were likely influenced by the fact that King James I was the monarch. And uh, between you and us, we've been calling this episode the Londoners Love Cool James episode or the LL Cool J episode. We are so professional. (laughs) We are so ready. Let's dive in. We are going to start this episode by doing a quick James's life in five minutes. Let's get James's life before we get into James and Macbeth and Shakespeare. Yeah. Then we'll also do some of the stuff that we've already covered. And then uh, we will dive deeper into things that we have not talked about at all. James's life in five minutes. James I was born on June 19th, 1566. He is a Gemini and only two years younger than Shakespeare. He was born in the Edinburgh Castle in Edinburgh, Scotland, which is towards the south of Scotland, close-ish to the English border if you're looking at a map. Before we jump to his ascension to the English throne, here's a bit about his childhood. He was the only son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and her second husband, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. James's papa died when James was around eight months old. Mama then got married to her third husband, James Hepburn, fourth Earl of Bothwell, eight months later in May 1567. Mary was then defeated by rebel Scottish lords and abdicated the throne in July of 1567. And the very basic explanation I found for her abdication was that she married her second husband's murderer, which is very Hamlet in my eyes. Very. (laughs) Uh, This led James at one year old to become the King of Scotland on July 24th, 1567. Mary left the kingdom nine months later in May 1568 and never saw her son ever again. Uh, When James was a young boy, he suffered from weak legs and was not able to stand on his own for the first six or seven years of his life. He ended up spending a lot of time as a young king fairly isolated. A lot of this led to a good education where he studied Greek, French, Latin, classical, and religious writings that his tutors, George Buchanan and Peter Young, assembled for him. And James's education aroused in him literary ambitions rarely found in princes and made a much more studious individual of him, which we can see with his future writings. James also spent his early years of regency as a puppet for intriguers and faction leaders. When James was 16, he was kidnapped by William Rithvin, 1st Earl of Gowrie. The following year, he escaped from his Protestant captors and began to pursue his own policies as king. He cultivated goodwill between himself and Elizabeth. In spite of Elizabeth's execution of his mother in 1587, two years later in 1589, James was married to Princess Anne of Denmark. He then worked to strengthen his Protestant authority in Scotland, which includes his intense persecution of witches through the North Berwick Witch Trials and his book, Demonology. And if you have not yet, go back and listen to our two episodes on demonology. In 1603, at age 36, 
He ascended to the English throne, and it's said that even though he was king in Scotland, either his lack of experience or his theory as a ruler did not equip him to solve problems and work with the English parliament. He had little contact with the English middle class and is attributed to being narrow-minded. He was also unpopular amongst English Catholics who wanted him to convert back to his mother's religion of Catholicism, which led quite a few assassination attempts on James as the monarch. He was also said to keep favorites in both houses of parliament. He was a king in a struggle for legislative supremacy as well as religious supremacy. He was actually super bad at finances, apparently, and he doubled the debt left by Elizabeth early on in his reign. And wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it was in four four years. In four years of his reign, he had doubled the debt that Elizabeth had left behind. And, and she ruled for decades. Yes, that's a great point. Put it into perspective. Uh, and after the death of his statesman, Robert Cecil, the first Earl of Salisbury, the gist is that he succumbed to the influence of incompetent advisors and his judgment continued to falter. James and Anne had four kids. Henry Frederick, Prince of Wales, who was the eldest son who died before he had a chance to inherit the crown. Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Bohemia, who was called the Winter Queen because her husband's reign was only for one winter. Charles I, who succeeded to become King of England and was beheaded in 1649 by the parliamentarians at the end of the English Civil War. And Robert Stuart, Duke of Kintyre and Lorne, who died at four months. And one event that took place during James's life was the Thirty Years' War, which was a conflict between modern Germany and Central Europe. During the Thirty Years' War, which began in 1618, two years after Shakespeare's death, so this part of James's life is not at all in Shakespeare's mind. But to look at his life, it's good to just acknowledge it. Uh, James attempted to enforce foreign policy by marrying off his second son to a Spanish princess as well as join Spain, and this move seems to disregard public opinion in England. Throughout the war, James was trying to ally England with Spain, with which his third parliament in 1621 bitterly rejected. As he entered the last few years of his life, he dissolved parliament and he saw nobles allying together and generally excluding him. He was basically exercising very little power in those last years until his death on March 27, 1625. And I found that James's legacy is mostly tied in his King James Bible, published in 1611. Wow. Mm -hmm. What yeah. a life. What a life. The thing that's always fascinating me with James is the like, I'm so bonded with my aunt who killed my mom. Mm -hmm. I was like, weird. But learning through this that he never really met in person his mom. At any like, sort of memory. age when he would have a memory of that. Yeah. And that from birth, he was basically king and influenced by politicians it totally makes sense how you could be like, well, I don't know this woman who gave birth to me. Mm -hmm. And everybody says that she's a traitor and, you know, had mm -hmm. to abdicate the throne. You know, we see in his writings that he's kind of an impressionable guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yeah, he could very easily be used as a political pawn by, like, advisors who, who are, you know, not great intentions. Right. You see that before Robert Cecil and then after Robert Cecil, like yep. things kind of really depend on who he has his ear. Exactly. I don't want to play something on you know Shakespeare that doesn't exist, but I could see why it would then be if this is a reputation that he has as a king, why I'd be like, oh, if I throw some stuff in that would make James happy, then I will very much appease him. Not that Shakespeare, we don't know if Shakespeare mm -hmm. was thinking that or not, but... 
you are right. It sounds like he was very impressionable when it comes to demonology, when it comes to how finances were going in the country, when it comes to who he was aligning himself with politically in spite of England's opposition. So, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, just to jump off of, we've talked about demonology and what he wrote specifically. And that I think leads well into some of the stuff that we've already covered and just want to touch upon really quickly and maybe share some things that didn't make it into those episodes. Mm -hmm. As we've already talked about the North Berwick witch trials and James's participation in them and the writing of demonology and his arguments for witches, the depiction of witches in Macbeth is very influenced by the Scottish conception of witchcraft Mm -hmm. and what was written about. And you can go back and listen to more about what those were. But one of the big things why we know that this is kind of the Scottish witches is that English concepts of witchcraft at the time were very, like, homespun, Mm. uh, folklore, based in just kind of cultural practices of the lower classes. Whereas Scotland and the European continent, their depictions of witchcraft at this time had that more formal, organized, satanic Conspiratorial. Conspiratorial. There are sabbats. There's ceremonial dancing, which we see in Macbeth. There's ceremonial dancing as part of a witch's sabbat in the Scottish depiction of witchcraft. Really? Yeah, which we see in Macbeth. You know, the Weird Sisters, hand-in-hand, posters of the sea and land, thus do go about, about... They're doing dances. They are singing yeah. songs. They like spin and... three times one way, three times the other. Three, Yeah. Yeah. And then the witches flying through the air. So them being able to control the wind or, you know, f- you know, flying together, kind of disappearing, being bubbles. Uh, that also came through the Scottish concept of witchcraft and was shaped by testimony from those North Berwick trials. And additionally, mm-hmm. the spell recipe for the apparitions has a lot of body parts in it. And those were specifically explicitly forbidden in James I's 1604 Law Against Witchcraft. And Agnes Sampson, who we talk about uh, yes. in the North Berwick Witch Trials, in her testimony, she admitted to using parts of a dead man's body in a spell that raised the storm that we talked about that almost destroys James's ship. Uh-huh. Again, if you don't know what all those references are to, you can go back to those episodes and listen. But those are things that we see in Macbeth that specifically come from the Scottish concept of witches. Wow, that's crazy. Agnes Sampson really made an impression on him. Again, he's impressionable. Agnes Sampson, yeah. like there, it sounds as if we're not there. We don't know for sure, but it sounds as if he took her word just for face value. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I was just like, yeah, and who knows who this woman was and what her motives were right. in taking blame for controlling the weather right? and right. plotting against James. That's crazy. Next up in our kind of topics we've already talked about, we've gone over the gunpowder plot, what it was. Yes. And also uh, in our Tyranny and Treason episode, I talked very briefly about how gunpowder was used in Macbeth, the original production and how that could have very much yeah. made the recent political events very present in the audience's mind when seeing this show. Right. It's a very visceral stage effect. Yeah. And the use of like olfactory senses as a device to, you know, make a point or 
or just like a theatrical device, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm going to not just like build a set. Um, I'm going to make a nosecape, as it yeah. were. <laughs> like yeah. A smellscape. James's nose was well-known and celebrated, not like for looks, but for how good of a sniffer he had. <laughs> uh, I wish there was a better way to say this, but literally, he was said to have literally sniffed out the gunpowder plot. And a ballad composed after the event goes as such. I'm so excited. Yep. Our king, he went to the parliament to meet his noble Pirza, but if he had known where he should have been blown, he durst not have gone for his earza. Then powder I smell, quoth our gracious king. Now our king was an excellent smeller. And louder and louder, quoth the king, I smell powder. And down he run into the cellar. That is incredible. Also didn't happen. Did not happen. It didn't happen. He They got they've got an anonymous letter tipping them off. Yes, they did. And then there were like guards who were doing the rounds. And James didn't come into the picture until he was questioning, interrogating, until he was interrogating Guy Fox and torturing him right. for answers. So he literally yes, had but, no part in sniffing it out. But, but you know, the myths of the day were that nobody could figure it out except that he smelled it. And then I'm trying really hard not to make a smelt it dealt it. Joke. You know what? Go on. Uh, Go on. Our audience. Okay. Our listeners expect that. <laughs> uh, he smelt it and then punishment, he dealt it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. His nose was said to be able to sort out fair and foul, also in things that were written about this. And we see this a bit in Macbeth, where Duncan is specifically bad at discerning fair and foul. You know, he, it smells heavenly, right? He's about to walk into a castle that, like, Lady Macbeth has invited the Dunnest Smoke of Hell, which would smell like sulfur and gunpowder. Gunpowder is probably, with that effect that was used for thunder, mm-hmm. that smell is probably still in the air when Duncan said that. And castles tend to smell like that anyway, because they were more strategic military strongholds than the palaces that we kind of think of maybe today, post-1700s, 1800s. We're not talking Versailles palaces. We're talking no. like more military. So it probably smells bad when Duncan says that. So the audience might, you know, have a laugh at how bad he is. a nose King Duncan has. And that depiction of Duncan also comes from an episode that we have not released just yet. But sneak peek, in a couple weeks, we will be talking about Hollinshed's Chronicles, which is a historical mm-hmm. document. How would you describe it? (laughs) Yeah. Holland Shed's Chronicles is a three-volume history of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And it dates back to um, the ancient island of England, as well as the history of the monarchs going back as far as 1066. So it's a historical record of England's history, and it does include Scotland. And it was wildly popular. Mm -hmm. There were two editions of it. Uh, one published right before Shakespeare was born, one published in his like teen adult years. Mm-hmm. And the depiction of Duncan as a kind of weak king comes from there. It's likely to be apocryphal. So uh, we get the characterization of Duncan. We get from there also uh, Macbeth as kind of this like an efficient ruler, 
Mm-hmm. Definitely crueler than Duncan. Yes. And we get names like McDuff, uh, Malcolm, yeah. McDonald, and Banquo, and all of these figures that are in Macbeth. Shakespeare takes definite liberties with what is written yes, in he does. Holinshed's Chronicles. And Holinshed's Chronicles is not exactly true history 100% of the time no. either. But for more on that, uh, listen in two weeks from when this episode will yes. be released. Absolutely. So that is it for things that we have definitely already covered in depth. Mm-hmm. And let's dive into more of things that aren't going to be covered in other episodes at all. Aspects of King James as a person that influence Shakespeare's that decision. Yeah. Death. Yeah, exactly. One of the things we've talked about is the idea of Macduff kind of being a James-like figure who also is very Christ-like. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't realized this before, this King James, who Macbeth was pretty much written for, right. is also the same guy whose name is on that very popular version of the Christian Bible. Yes. So before the 16th century, the Bible was only available in Latin. Mm-hmm. During the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther published the first vernacular or common language Bible in Germany in 1522. Mm -hmm. There's a core Protestant belief that the Bible should be the property of all people and not only accessible to a highly privileged, highly educated few, like priests, anybody who can read Latin. Cardinals, yeah. Yeah, cardinals, scholars, lords, ladies, you know, people who get to go to college. Anyone who has the benefit of an education. Yeah. Yeah. So there were English translations prior to the King James Bible, such as Tynesdale's Bible, uh, that followed Martin Luther's suit as -hmm. early as 1525. Tynesdale's Bible was a little bit controversial. It wasn't like an official English Bible. And the Puritans, which were a very loud Mm -hmm. political minority during this time, wanted an English Bible without the inaccuracies that they found in previous English versions. So, in 1604, at the Hampton Court Conference, James announced his plan for a Bible that would be for all English people, not belong to one sect, denomination, elite, or special interest groups. So, King James was very politically motivated to create this new version. He hoped it would consolidate the Reformation and supply a core text for Protestant worship that was markedly different from Rome's Latin Bible, thereby stabilizing and uniting the country while asserting independence from the Pope. Also, it would be England and go England. That's something that I had no idea before this episode. I had no idea that the King James Bible was commissioned in order to give him authority as a monarch in a biblical sense, but at the same time appease Puritans who were dissenting to the current religious structure of the Church of England. It was very much a political maneuvering. I wasn't able to find this in my research, But I've also heard more than once that King James, as we have mentioned before, was probably gay Mm -hmm. and had a partner. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about the Puritans, Mm. they're very much not queer affirming. No. No. So I had heard also that part of that appeasing the Puritans is that they were also unhappy with James's sexuality, James's partying, and so... It wasn't just this, like, oh, they want this without inaccuracies. It was, like, also, like, they're, you know, getting very angry about a lot of things that are James, and here's something that he can 
do to do make things right for them. Here, here's a peace offering. Basically, yeah. let me live my life and party and be in the relationships I want to be in and don't rise up against me. Yeah, I'll create I'm something. I'm going to give you the Bible you want. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Fun fact, to this day in Britain, authorized versions of the Bible can only be printed by license of the English crown. Yeah, you have to be licensed by really? the Queen of England in order to print an authorized version of the King James Bible. The Bible is also the work of six companies, mm-hmm. totaling roughly 50 scholars. Yes. However, about 80% is pretty much Tynesdale's Bible plagiarized. Mm. I did not know that was the number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Puritans were very much actually unhappy with Tynesdale's Bible. They said that it had inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's word for word plagiarized. And that's... Like 80% of... Yeah. Uh, specifically the first five books okay. of the Old Testament okay. are almost word for word the same. Well, and the other thing about the actual creation of the King James Bible was that there, like like you said, it was six six subcommittees creating this um, this, and the men that were actually a part of the the trans the retranslation the creation of a, a new Bible they were mostly like scholars. There were some lords and nobles. They were not pious men, so there was a lot of like religion, politics, and academia placed into the creation of this text that the puritans who were dealing with like the rigor of morality and the rigor of piousness were wanting so i mean there were puritan translators as well but i just think it's something to note that the people who were creating this bible were not all from the same religious sect yeah of the puritans Uh, yeah and that's very much what james presented at the Hampton Court Conference that this is not going to be done by one denomination of Protestant Christianity Mm -hmm. or a special interest group. It is going to be a scholarly work that is going to be a very good Mm peer-reviewed translation of the Bible. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and it has its longevity as well. Like, if we think about it, it was published in 1611 and it's still used. So something about that you can Bible, still find it. Yeah, something about that yeah. Bible has stuck with us. In every motel in the United States, there's a copy of this Bible, and the la- like. Some of the language is incredibly beautiful in there. Yeah, well, that's something that I saw was that the goal was, and the thing that it scholars say it really accomplished was the phrases were richer and multiplicitous, and they were great for reading aloud, but they were also dense. And it was truer to the Greek linguistic origins. So when you read it, it's majestic is the word that kept getting used. To read the book itself is majestic, which is fantastic for if you're having a sermon and you're preaching. But also if you're reading, it's simple enough that those who are just reading the the good book at home don't have to work too hard to understand what's being said because it's simple, it's precise. So that's something that, like, people today attribute to the King James Bible. Mm -hmm. Although the first published edition in 1611 was a failure, and it had a lot of printing inaccuracies. And there's one uh, version, the 1631, that was called the Wicked Bible. Have you heard of this one? No. It's called the Wicked Bible because it left out one very important word in the seventh commandment and the seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery but it left out the word not 
<laughs> so it said, thou shalt commit adultery. That sounds on brand for James. Sounds a bit on brand for James. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it was it was a, a tactic that was used to unite two sides of England's religious divide. But I don't think it worked very well because 30 years later, there was something called the English Civil War, which was pure, yeah. Puritan and Parliamentarian versus Bishop and King. So for its time, the King James Bible was quite a failure. Valiant effort. Valiant effort. But, but it did not accomplish. Definitely has had the longevity of, you know, contemporary works like Shakespeare's works. Yeah. But yeah, for its time. Mm. <laughs> and then uh, we also see the Christ-like figure of King James in the faith healing aspects, like the inclusion of King Edward mm -hmm. as the king who Malcolm goes to visit. Yes. During this time period, both during historical Macbeth's life as well as Shakespeare's life, there was this widely accepted fact, the divine right of kings, where the king is sent from God, was the messenger, was the link to God, um, in many ways how you see the Pope being that link for the Roman Catholic Church. And there was not the same emphasis on this concept when historical Macbeth was alive, but it still existed. The divine right of kings basically guarantees that kings have healing powers by touch. It's called royal healing, and kings and queens are able to cure what is called the king's evil. One of the diseases that they were thought to be able to cure with the royal touch was something called scrofula, which might be close to um, a form of tuberculosis. It's an infection of the lymph nodes caused by the tuberculosis or Usually about 95% of adult cases are caused by the tuberculosis bacteria. Basically, there's a bunch of abscesses and a rash uh, appear in the neck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, but the idea was that kings have the power, kings and queens, monarchs have the power to heal by touch. And the first recorded healing by an English king was Edward the Confessor, which is the reference made in Macbeth. And... This uh, was taken seriously up until up until um, around the Tudor era. It was taken seriously. People did really think that monarchs were able to cure through touch. However, it became incredibly politicized during Henry VIII's life on. Henry VIII is, if we all remember from the intro series, when England split from the Catholic Church, from the Roman Catholic Church, and became the Church of England. And by separating... England from Rome and having the Pope as your direct link to God, there was this need to legitimize the divine right of king. And in order to do that, one political maneuver, one uh, political tactic was to really push the narrative of the royal touch. Because what that meant is that if you could prove or if you could write and tell the people that kings and queens are able to cure you, they are connected directly to God because God has given them the power to cure people because it's evidence. It's absolute evidence that the monarch is divinely linked to God and that the divine right of kings is legitimate. That is especially beneficial to talk about when it comes to King James because King James was a very big believer in the divine right of kings. He believed it even though when he was like a, a boy, his tutors, they were Scottish historians that were very 
anti-divine right of kings. George Buchanan was uh, a humanist who taught the philosophies of a contract between the rulers and the people, which is a Mm. sort of doctrine of tyrannicide. And as an adult king, James worked really hard to legitimize or re-legitimize the monarchy at a time when humanists were saying, I don't really know if we need this king. Like, why do we have him? Yeah. Yeah. Before he became king, he wrote a couple of books. He wrote some more text. He wrote demonology. But he also wrote something called The True Law of Free Monarchies, which was a theoretical text about the divine right of kings. And he wrote Basilicon Doran a couple years later, which is a manual on kingship, which this links back to how literary he was. He was writing that the monarch was divinely ordained, that monarchs are accountable to God alone, hereditary secession governs the monarchy, and subjects have no rights to resistance. And in Basilican Doran, the only way to know what a king is, is to know what a tyrant is, and you have to keep them in an antithesis. So throughout James's his reign in Scotland and in England, he was finding ways that he could legitimize his belief that he is divinely ordained and that there's no other way for England to be governed because he is sent by God. Mm-hmm. If James is the closest tie to God in England, he is the biggest threat or target of the devil himself. So that's, I can see that being as like something where it's like, okay, well, Macduff is, it has to be the one that gets rid of Macbeth because. Mm-hmm. He's ultimately the savior. Yeah, but the big miracle of the Stuart period was the royal touch to cure illnesses as a representation of divine right. Okay, so when we talk about the royal healing, royal healing was actually like a big public event. Many monarchs used it, like Elizabeth I. She actually was not interested in following in her grandfather's footsteps and using royal healing, the royal touch, mm-hmm. and um, using that as like a way to connect with her subjects. She became interested in royal touch as a event when the papal bull came out and the Pope was telling Catholic subjects, hey, uh, she's actually a false queen and (laughs) you don't have to listen to her. And then, yeah, after that happened, Elizabeth began having mass royal touch events. Yeah, so this this was an effort for Elizabeth to assert herself as the link to God with the healing gift when the Pope claimed it was taken away from her due to her apostasy from Rome. So political importance for legitimacy with opposing Catholics. And that was something that really like lit the fire for the legitimacy of the royal touch. And there would be really big events where people would come all around and um, she would just touch them and then they would go and honestly... Mm-hmm. I have no idea how much this is actually has any sort of legitimacy because at the same time as people were going to um, get the royal touch, they were still going to doctors and they were still having doctors. They were still being. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. And we don't have we don't have a lot of really good records of what was actually happening. Most of what we have is from people who were close to kings and queens writing about like, say, here's one. Allegedly, a Catholic, quote, groveled at the feet of Queen Elizabeth asking to be cured through the royal touch. She obliged him and he was cured. And the Catholic noted that the excommunication of Elizabeth was null since God had blessed her with so great a miraculous power. So all of the stories of Elizabeth's healing was a tool to legitimize her during a time when the papal bull was revoking her legitimacy. So 
it goes out of fashion for a while, and then it comes back with a vengeance because the Protestant English monarchy is mm-hmm. trying to give a big middle finger to Rome mm-hmm. and prove that they are still descended from from God. They yeah, they still have that God connection. It 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 came from God Himself, not not by grace of Rome. Exactly. Essentially. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And James used this uh, royal touch as well. And Macbeth references divine right of kings frequently, and that's something James would have loved. Macbeth's description of the body of Duncan is as, quote, the Lord's anointed temple, mm-hmm. quote, his silver skin laced with his golden blood. Yep. And the English doctor's account is the way that um, he describes King Edward's miraculous touch, quote, such sanctity hath heaven given his hand, and it will be transmitted to the succeeding royalty. So Shakespeare was writing this at a time when he knew royal touch was linked to legitimacy of a monarch. I don't know how much like mm-hmm. how much awareness there was of it because it was commonly accepted in his time. Okay, and here is one more quote about James's royal healing. Macbeth references James's royal healing when Malcolm says, quote, "'Tis called the evil, a most miraculous work in this good king, which often since my here remain in England, I have seen him do it. How he solicits heaven, himself best knows, down to the line, with this strange virtue, he hath a heavenly gift of prophecy. And in this line, it describes the power of royal touch, and it's anachronistic as these practices were not described in, or they were not in Macbeth's time. But in Tudor and Stuart England, this was a super attractive act for a monarch to claim to have the power to do. And this line might be a little clue that Shakespeare is acknowledging James's right as king. So not only did James claimed this divine right. He also ha- claimed right to the throne through lineal descent. Mm-hmm. And characters in Shakespeare's Macbeth are James's ancestors. So James claimed that he was descended from Fergus I, the first king of Scotland who reigned in about 330 BCE. James would have been the 108th king in that line. Malcolm would have been the 86th, and Duncan was the 84th. So mm-hmm. then you might ask, well, why, why is Duncan never like the ghost that appears? Why is it Banquo, mm-hmm. right? Why does Banquo show up as an apparition and not Duncan? Good question. Banquo and Fleance weren't ever kings, but their line became the Stuart line, which is James's family. Mm-hmm. Fleance is descendant in the seventh degree. First degree is your child. Second degree is grandchild. Third is great grand. So. Seventh is great, 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 great grandchild. Mm-hmm. So Fleance is that many grandchild. Uh, <laughs> it's like Walter in holes. married the daughter of... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Fleance's descendant, this guy named Walter, married the daughter of Robert the Bruce, who was uh, king number 99 in the Fergus line, for those keeping track at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Walter's son became Robert II of Scotland. And took Stuart as his last name in honor of his father, Walter. Walter was the steward mm. for Robert the Bruce. Okay. It became the name of this royal house. And Robert II was the first of the Stuart kings. So there were eight generations between Robert II and Fleance. And according to myth, between Robert II and James VI, 
slash R. James I in mm-hmm. England, was another eight generations of kings, if you skip Mary, James's mother. Okay. This is referenced in the apparition scene with the line of eight kings and mm-hmm. a mirror showing their reflection. Mm-hmm. And this puts a greater emphasis on the Stuarts and Banquo in this story as a treat for James instead of placing the emphasis on Duncan. Right. Malcolm becomes king. It's great. But Banquo is the Stuart ancestor. Yeah. So yeah, what that's he- why it's featured so prominently. It is confusing as a as a viewer, as a uh, as a reader, and as even as a performer, because Shakespeare is pushing two different lines, like a primary line and a secondary line of lineage. Like you've got Duncan as number one; he's primary up until the banquet scene, mm-hmm. and then yeah. um, Banquo and that whole you know because you you start out with Duncan is king and Banquo gets the prophecy that he will um, father kings, but he will not be a king himself. So that's what we have mm-hmm. from Act 1 and Act 2 until Act 3. Act 3, then, it flips, and the prophecy about the lineage of kings becomes the primary lineage that we're talking about, and then Duncan technically is secondary. Yeah, Macbeth is more worried about preventing anyone who's related to Banquo from living mm-hmm. and less concerned with what Malcolm or Donald Bain are doing in England. They right. basically, uh, without you know Macduff going to England to talk to Malcolm, they're not consequential to the character of Macbeth. At that moment. Oh, yeah. And so the secondary is just away. Yeah. Instead, the character's haunted by Banquo, and we don't really hear about Duncan ever again, except Mm-mm. for Malcolm being around. <laughs> being around, yeah. Basically, Malcolm in the distance in England gathering troops to yeah. uh, overthrow. But that is that is so away from Macbeth's consciousness. Yeah, and at the same time, you know, during those apparitions, you know, the, the horrid sight is Banquo's progeny becoming kings. And yeah. the idea that the wood is going to march on him is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the greater imminent threat because that's right. coming, you know, in just a couple more acts. Right. But yeah, that's just in there as like a little a little extra like nod to James's dual lineage. Like both sides of his family essentially are in this play. Yeah. And we we start talking about Malcolm and this scene and it also reminded me about how this play is set up to make Scotland feel more English. We now have a Scottish king on the throne. James was very pro-England and Scotland unifying as a single nation, mm-hmm. which was a very politically divisive topic. English people did not want necessarily want to be no. No. with Scotland. During, during this time period, there was the image that English subjects had of Scots was incredibly um what's the word it's I, I wouldn't want to say racist but uh derogatory but it, was, it was prejudiced prejudiced yeah 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 it was very prejudiced most representations of Scottish people up until Macbeth were not positive or they weren't there were a lot of negative stereotypes used even in earlier Shakespeare plays right uh like Comedy of Errors, Dromeo of Syracuse calls Scotland barren. 
Scottish people are othered. Like in Henry V, uh, Jamie from Scotland speaks in a broad Scottish dialect. So they're mm-hmm. very other and they're played for comedy that, mm-hmm. in a way that could potentially be offensive to a yeah. Scottish king. Or they're villainous. Yeah, exactly. And now and now comes yeah. along James. He's Scottish. His history is Scottish. All the characters yeah. are pretty much, pretty much all the characters are Scottish. And now like here comes some very fair yeah. representations, very like well-rounded yeah. representation of the Scots. Yeah, in the front material of uh, the Arden 3rd edition of Macbeth, this is discussed a lot. The English popular dislike of Scottish people and Scotland was, quote, not just an irritant, but a significant political reality. Mm-hmm. And when Macbeth was written, there were contemporary plays that were still very anti-Scottish in tone, in jokes, in their satire. Ben Jonson's Eastward Ho, for example, and Thomas Middleton's Michaelmas Term are two plays that were written, produced around the same time as Macbeth, where Scottish people are the butt of jokes. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we have this play that avoids Scottish stereotypes, uh, linguistic indications of identity. And um, while we don't actually know how the play sounded on stage, what the actors chose to do, Shakespeare, when he writes characters who speak in an accent, he writes it in an accent. So we mm-hmm. can, I think we can assume right. that this was meant to be said in the London actor accent of the time. Yeah. And then we have like actual representation of this in the play with mm-hmm. talking again about that king's apparition. Macbeth notes that some of them have the twofold ball and treble scepters. And that's um, signifying the merge of England and Scotland because they're kings of more than one nation. And then we also see in the plot, England technically invades Scotland. Malcolm goes to England and then returns to violent Scotland and is able to restore peace and is welcomed as a savior. Malcolm was also historically half English on his mother's side, Mm. which is why he's able to ask for his uncle Syward's help. Syward is the Earl of Northumberland. He's an Englishman. Mm Mm-hmm. Malcolm requires English aid to restore his rightful claim to the throne, and then he converts Scottish thanes to earls, in, and that action anglicizes them, makes them more English. Mm-hmm. Malcolm can very much be seen as a pro-union of Scotland and England mm-hmm. representation. Some scholars also argue that, like conversely, this play can be read as a very coded warning against uniting England with Scotland, like, oh, yeah. look how violent they are. Bloody past, yeah. But I'm also like, uh, if it was trying to be more coded, why wouldn't it be a satire or why wouldn't it be like what everyone else was writing? Right, right. And Macbeth came at a time when James's unification project was rejected by Parliament in 1604 and in 1607. So it can be seen as useful for Anglo-Scottish relations and like his unification project just in general. So I... I, I mean, yeah. to me, I read it more like pro let's be one country i do too i think if i think if shakespeare was going just based based on like my knowledge of like jewish characters and black characters if he was going to be anti i think that he would have been anti you know what i mean language that reflects we would see more of a shylock than yeah yeah we would see language that represents that in the end like a good half english king yeah can restore order and peace and they can be just like us like that's that's what happens Mm -hmm. at the end here and i think there's so much you know things we've already talked about like the gunpowder plot 
and witches that are in here that if you weren't trying to write a play in support or trying to get support from a king who was trying to do this political task of uniting two countries for the first time, why would you include all of this stuff that is just meant to play as a treat for this one human being? Right, right. I completely agree with that. So to wrap it all up, because Mm -hmm. of King James, Macbeth has in it witches, specifically the Scottish variety. References to the gunpowder plot, which was an assassination attempt against King James. Historical characters from Scottish history, from a major work of English, Scottish, and Irish history. A Christ-like comparison of the king himself in one of our characters, Macduff, as well as religious undertones for a king who commissioned a Bible that's got his name in it. We also see the language about divine right of kings and a reference to royal healing that this king did. His literal ancestors are major characters in this plot. And then there is the coded support, or you could also read it as lack of support, for his unification project of Scotland and England. I don't know if Londoners really love Cool James, but... I hope listeners do. Yeah, I hope listeners love Cool James. Or uh, at least have learned a little bit about him through Mm -hmm. our coverage of Macbeth. And next time you see it, read it, I hope that all of this you'll notice because... My gosh, there are so many nuggets that will make James just bubble over with joy. Yep. So many things for him to say, oh, I get that reference. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, he's like, me? That is that me? And ah. I think that that wraps up our episode on Ella Cool J, our man King James I. Yep. And that's all. Thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, ShakespeareAnyone.com, follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod, or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's ShakespeareAny and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Twelfth Night, Act 2, Scene 3, Spoken by Orsino. Let all the rest give place.